All right, well, let's go ahead and open them in prayer. Father, thanks for a beautiful day and for bringing us safe to your house. I pray that you guide our hearts and minds as we study this topic today. Give us insight in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're continuing our way through the doctrine of the church, and today we're going to be talking about the organization of the church in terms of its um, organizational structure from the human level. We're going to be talking about deacons and pastors and elders and all that stuff. So we're going to spend a lot of our time actually in second, or 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if you all want to open your Bibles to that passage, um, we're going to be there for or 1 Timothy chapter 3, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, is where we're going to be today. And we're going to be basically, and by the way, I forgot to send notes in to uh, Teresa. Teresa, so that's my bad. Um, I thought I did, but then I didn't. So that's what you get when you get old, you forget things. That's what I'm told at least. But uh, we'll be mainly in First uh, Timothy chapter 3 today, and probably bouncing over to Titus 1 as well. When Christ uh, left the earth, he left the church in charge of his 12 disciples, right? Actually, there was 11 of them, and then Matthias came and took the place of Judas, who lost his place. And so what you see in the early church is you see a pattern of, of leadership. And interestingly enough, they pattern this quite a bit after the synagogue, and we're going to see that as we work our way through um, the text. When you look at church structure today, there's basically four models, four major ways to organize your church, where a church can be organized. One is called the monarchical or hierarchical. What's that? You've got a very rigid hierarchy of leadership. An example we're going to talk about in a minute is Catholicism. You've got a very rigid sort of layers of leadership. Another one is the federal or representative. This would be along the lines of possibly a Presbyterian church where you have an elder board that runs the church, a group of elders that um, are the ones who officers of the church. You have a congregational democratic, that's the one I grew up in, a Baptist church, where, where it's at. You have a pastor who's the head, the king, the almighty potentate of the church, and the congregation votes him and lets him do things. It's a congregational rule. The, the actual rule of the church is in the congregation who can vote the pastor in and out, but basically the pastor is the one who leads the church. And then, this is a, more of a modern one, you have a free-for-all. You see that in some of the emergent church and some other things where it's like there is no organizational structure. They all just get together and whatever happens, happens. There's really no officers, there's nobody in charge. Uh, you see this somewhat in the emergent church where you have a guy who stands up and says, you know, what gives you the right to stand up and talk to me for 40 minutes and I'm not able to question it? I mean, that's the, that's the mentality. I have a right to talk as much as you have a right to talk. In fact, my story about God is probably just as good as your story, so what gives you the right to tell me what the Bible says? So they don't have a pastor as such? They have leadership, but not leadership. Yeah. All right? It, it's very squishy. Well, you, you've got it. You, you, you got the point. There is no church. I like what John MacArthur says. He said, it doesn't matter me, it doesn't bother me as much they do what they do, but they call themselves a church. They're not a church. All right? And if you go back to uh, the question, and I don't know if I talked about this, what is a church? What, 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 what defines a church? And when you look at the Reformation, and I, there's three principles, and I know two of them off the top of my head. I can't remember the first one. But one of them is a place where the sacraments are administered, i.e., baptism and communion. A church also is a place where church discipline is practiced. And a church is a place, I think, where the word of God is proclaimed and preached and taught. All right, so you go to some of these and there's, now they're not going to practice church discipline because, you know, you have just as much a right to live your life as I have to live mine. It's the postmodern, it's the whole, it's, it's hook, line, sinker, um, postmodernism. And the thing to understand about God, God is not an author of confusion. He, he, is God confused about what's going on? Is he confused about an organization? I mean, when we get to heaven, is it going to be a great grand free-for-all up there? No, there's organization or structure. All right? So this free-for-all kind of approach is just silly to me. But there are churches you go to where the, it is sort of a free-for-all. 
there is no real organizational structure. It's a group of Christians that get together and they just float in and float out and float around. And here's the other danger of this. What, uh, what accountability do you have in a group like that? None. Yeah. Well, you don't argue, you discuss. Okay? But the point here is th there's no accountability. I mean, one of the things that makes a church a church is there's accountability. You know, if, 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 God forbid, I were to go off the deep end and do something, the church would come after me. All right, hopefully all you would come after me. I mean, that's, that's mutual accountability. We need that. Now, a lot of people say, well, I can be a Christian. I don't need, you know, accountability. Wait a minute. The Bible does not know anything about a Rambo Christian. What's that? You drop off in the middle of the jungle and you hack your way through with nothing but your hunting knife. All right, that's not, that's not the New Testament. When you see New Testament Christians, where are they? They're with others. Why? Because we need to encourage one another, admonish one another, um, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those that weep. There's an accountability in a church. And just have a free-for-all and you just sort of float in and float out and there, there's no accountability and there's no structure and there's nothing. That's, that's really good for people that want to just bounce around. And if they want to come to church Sunday, that's fine. If not, they can go play golf. But nobody cares because it doesn't matter whether they're or not. To me, that's not a church at all. Don't call yourself a church. That's the point. I, and again, I like what MacArthur said. He said, I'm not as much bothered about the emergent church of what they do. I'm bothered they call themselves a church because they're not a church, per se. They're, they're not what a real church is. Yeah, and their belief system about the Bible... That, I don't want to get too much into this because we'll be in this rabbit trail all day. But basically, the real emergent church today says the Bible may be the inspired word of God, but it's not clear. So you can't understand it. And, and you're really arrogant and pompous to actually get up and say, hey, the Bible says this. How do you know the Bible says that? What gives you the right to tell me what that means? I have just as much a right to interpret that passage as you do. So what, makes, what gives you the right to tell me that the Bible says thus and so? Because I have a right to determine that for myself. In fact, my idea might be better than yours. So what you do is you sit around and say, well, in my humble opinion, the Bible means blah. Well, I don't see Peter preaching like that. I certainly don't see Paul preaching like that. And I don't think Christ was very squishy in his preaching, was he? No. So don't go there. All right? You can't understand the Bible. There, there's vast amounts of this that you can understand. So to get in this idea that, well, the Bible is, is uh, the inspired word of God, but if you try to say what it means, you don't, you're, just, you're just being arrogant, that's, that's silliness. All right, that, that's to be dismissed. All right. If you look at the monarchical um, church, the monarchical structured church, power lies in the hands of a church hierarchy. You have a very defined church hierarchy. Um, sometimes it's known as the Episcopal type of, and I'm saying Episcopal church, but Episcopal type of government. It comes from the Greek word episkopos, which means bishop or overseer. All right. Um, and to some extent, the, the early church had a little bit of this. All right. I mean, there was a defined hierarchy. In the early church in Acts, who was the leadership of the church? Who were the leaders? The apostles, right? And as the church grew, of course... You had other under-shepherds that would come along. But early on, you had a little bit of an Episcopal-type structure very, very early on in the infancy of the church. You, you did have a little bit of that. Um, when you look at the modern denominations today that have this form of church governance, you see Episcopal, Roman Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Methodist, where you have, um, in, for instance, in a Catholic church, you have the priest of the local assembly, and over them is a bishop, over them is an archbishop, you got the cardinal, and then you eventually got the pope. All right? I think that's the way it works. So you got this hierarchy as you work your way up. Um, the Mormon church is, is like this. Um, you have the elder in the individual stake, they call it, or church area, and then he reports up. And finally you get to the council of the 70, then to the council of the 12, then to the council of the 3, and then to the first president, who's the head of the Mormon church. It's a very hierarchical kind of structure. 
And um, usually it's divided up into regions, things like that. The Methodist Church has that too. For example, a Methodist, in the Methodist denomination, they'll assign you a pastor. You don't get to choose your pastor. They'll say, we're going to assign you this pastor. And, oh, we think we don't, we don't want him there. We're going to assign somebody else there. So you've got a new guy coming in, and this guy goes somewhere else. And they sort of move him around as they will, and it's run by the church hierarchy. All right? The, the solidified form of this really came about in the second century where it became sort of an institutionalized way of running things. Where you had local pastors and you had a bishop over them. And then, it, of course, by the time the 7th century rolled around, 8th century, it morphed into the Catholicism that we have today, all right? Where you have a very rigid hierarchy. Now, what does the Bible say, as, as you look at this, does the Bible, or does the New Testament, really promote this kind of church leadership? Yeah. Is there a hierarchy to the church? And what is it? Jesus is the head, and we are... The body. Now, within a congregation, a local congregation, you'll have elders that rule, but, but there's, no, there's none of this multi-layered kind of approach to things. All right, you don't have multiple layers of, of leadership in the early church. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you see, if you see some of the rottenness that was going on in the medieval Catholic church, and even today you got that, you know, the, the pedophile issues and things like that. They're, you're told who your pastor is. You're told who's going to run it. And you just go along with uh, whatever the church hierarchy says. And, and they don't really have accountability. You can't go and question them. Not really. And, and in, the, in, in Catholicism and even in, a little bit in Mormonism, you know, the leadership can define new beliefs that you have to believe in order to be part of that, that group. Um, that, that's a dangerous thing where, where you come up with new doctrines. You see this a lot in Catholicism, but you see it in some of the other um, forms of this as well. All right, this is a hierarchical form. That, and there are just some, you've got to understand, there are some churches today that this is how they're, how they're governed. Here's the Presbyterian form. The federal or elder rule power lies, the, the leadership, when I say power lies, I mean the leadership, the leadership of the flock, the leadership of the church. Is in the hands of the ruling elders. And notice what it is. Notice something about elders. What do you know about it? What's on the end of it? There's more than one. It's not an elder. It's an elders. There's a lot of them. There's more than one of them. It's also known as the Presbyterian form of governance. It comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which is elder. Um, seen in 1 Timothy 5.17. Now, I'm convinced that this is really the basic pattern you see in the New Testament. This is, this is the best pattern, all right? This is how the early New Testament church was really organized as it grew beyond the apostles, all right? The leadership of the church is composed of a group of godly elders, some who teach and some who may not teach. And we're going to talk about the qualifications of an elder in a minute. Um, the idea there is that the church leadership has a group of godly men, and I'm going to get in trouble already because it's godly men. I'm sorry, ladies. It's godly men who run the church, and they work together. They are, they are the leaders of the church. They seek God's guidance, and some of them may preach, some of them may not. You might have a pastor that doesn't preach. All right? How many know Bob Schroyer? Do you realize that Bob Schroyer couldn't preach if his life depended on it? But I'll tell you what, if you're sick, you don't want anybody else but him in your room. Right? Yeah, he was. He preached one time, and it was, yeah, it wasn't a good, yeah. I'm not, and I'm not casting spurs on Pastor Bob. He was a, he's a wonderful, godly man, all right? But that wasn't his calling. His calling was being with people, you know, visitation. I, I've never seen anybody that had a shepherd's heart like him. Um, and, and the whole point there is you can be an elder and not preach or not, not really preach as, a, as your expression of leadership, all right? But it's a group of godly men, and they, they together seek the Lord's guidance and lead the church. And this is the local congregation, all right? This is the local congregation. Um, you see it in the modern Presbyterian Reformed churches. Most Reformed churches are along this line, and the Presbyterian are along this line. 
Um, John MacArthur's church is governed along this line. There's a lot of churches that are governed like this. And if you go out to his church, he's just one of the elders. He's not the chief god, potentate, bow down to him kind of person. He's one of the elders on the board. And uh, every year they have to reaffirm the slate of elders. So every year the congregation reaffirms his leadership. Um, he's just one of many. He's not the one who runs the church. Now he's the one that actually has the gift of preaching, so he's the one that's going to do most of the preaching. That's his area of giftedness. But he's just one of the elders. He's not the elder of elders. Each other and the Christ. They're accountable to each other. You might have a loose association, but there's no thing in the New Testament about um, having some denominational headquarters that run the church. Um, you can have an association. Now, let's understand something about, I need to take a little divergence here and talk about this a minute. Even though, even though the elder rule pattern seems to be the preferred pattern in the New Testament. Is it the only valid pattern? Yeah, see, now, right there you've got some argument from a lot of people. Some would say, yeah, this is the only valid way to do it. I mean, that's the pattern. You've got to do it that way. If you don't do it that way, you're not being scriptural. Well, does anywhere in the Bible does it tell you that this is the way you have to organize your church? No, it doesn't. Is, th is this a good way? Is this the way they did it? Well, yeah, it is. And it works well, and it, it's a solid way, it's, it's a strong way, I, I think it's the best way. But that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to improvise. Did the early church improvise? How'd they improvise? What was the first time that they really improvised? Remember Acts 6? When they had the organizing of the seven deacons. You got it. Yeah, yeah. They, 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 uh... They had a problem. You know, the elders or the apostles were devoted to prayer and to study and the ministry of the word. And people wanted them to be doing all of this other stuff as well. Well, you can't do both. You can do one or the other. You can't do both. He said, well, I'll tell you what. Let's pick out seven godly men. And, and they had the character qualities there. And we'll let them go do the, you know, service of the widows and that. And we can devote ourselves to prayer. So they improvised. All right, they came up with the deacon, um, office of deacon, basically. Servant, someone who raised the dust, someone who did, did the... Now, now, were the deacons, were they qualified to do that? Well, yeah, you didn't just pick anybody to do that, right? They had spiritual qualifications, but they were chosen by the church. So the church improvised. So there's nothing wrong, in, like in, in to, to Steve's point, let's say there's a group of churches that all have the same basic uh, beliefs, all have the same basic goals. Is it wrong for them to form an association and work together to some extent? Well, no. No, it isn't. You can have those. Um, you have the independent fundamentalist churches of America, which MacArthur's church is a part of. You have the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. You have some of these groups. There's nothing wrong with these groups. There's nothing unbiblical about them. Um, I would be, I would be worried if they start dictating to the local assembly what you do and who you have as pastor and how you should run things. Now, that, that, now you're getting into the hierarchical um, part. But to organize together and work together as a group of churches, there's nothing wrong with that. All right? And then some churches break away, don't they? Yeah. Free Methodists Yeah. Yeah, and what happens is if the denomination goes south, you may be that you have to break away from that. I mean, you see this happening in the Episcopal Church, right? Where where a, a, there's a great push to, um, to legitimize homosexual pastors and leaders. And there are some Episcopal churches that, we're out of here, see ya. The problem is, who owns the buildings? The denomination does. So now you've got to get out of your building because the denomination, you get all kinds of messy things that way. All right. um, this, this here appears to be the basic model in the New Testament for churches. Um, when you see the book of Titus, Paul says to Titus that he left him to ordain elders in every city. Um, Paul told Timothy to ordain elders. I mean, and here's the idea about elders. They were not voted on by the congregation. They were selected by the leadership. Now, we don't like that in our modern American society, do we? We want to be able to tell who our pastors are. 
But the idea here is that Paul told Titus, I want you to ordain the elders. And here's the qualifications of the ones you ordain. Now, as a congregation, did you have to agree to submit to the leadership of the elder? Yes. And if an elder sinned, what were you to do? Repuke him publicly. So there's, there's a great amount of, um, of uh, accountability the elder has to the church. But the elders were to be appointed. They were to be selected. All right? This is the basic pattern you see in the New Testament. Um, another form is the congregational rule form. This is what I grew up with. Um, power is really in the hands of the congregation. Now, at Open Door, what is our organizational structure? We're sort of in the middle of a congregational and elder rule format. We're sort of in the middle of that. All right? We have a, what you would call an elder board, which is the pastors of the church. All right, that would be the, 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 the senior pastor, the executive pastor, Dan would be one of those, Chad. Those are, the, those are what you would consider the elders, all right? And as we as a congregation, what do we have to do? We have to vote on an elder. Now, when our new executive pastor was chosen, how did that happen? Well, the, the senior management team, which would consist of Pastor Jim and the other pastors, interviewed and found a candidate, and then he brought that candidate to the governing board, which then interviewed him and passed that recommendation out of the congregation who had to vote. We have a congregational vote for new pastors. Not for other positions, but all, for all pastor positions we do. So we have something sort of in the middle. Now is that wrong? No. I don't think it's wrong. Um, that's the way, there, there's different ways to organize your church. I don't think there's one solid only way, and if you don't do it that way, you're out of God's will. I don't, I'm not going there. But I do think there are better ways to run a church and less better ways to run a church. Um, it's also known as the congregational form, and in some of these, the pastors, the single elder, you go to some of the black churches, and I'm not picking on black people, but I, you go to some of the black churches, the pastor is like the king, and what he says goes. And if you don't go along with the pastor, you might as well just go find another church. All right? Um, it's, a, it's when a lot of churches are that way. I mean, it's just... I remember when I was growing up, if you didn't get along with a pastor, you might as well just go because it's, you're not going to live. Usually, these are a lot of smaller churches, all right? They're not large churches. They're smaller. But um, the problem with this kind of... The, the danger in this kind of um, church leadership is the pastor sometimes has too much authority and power. And depending on what kind of person it is, it can go to your head or not. Now, there are some churches, by the way, that this works fine in. It's not evil. There's just some dangers here that you've got to watch out for in a, in a church. There are historical and cultural reasons for that, which I won't yeah. give a brief history of, but that's why that's true. Yeah, and, and it's not just that those churches. It's a lot of churches that are this way, but, but a lot of your smaller churches, um, you know, the pastor's like, he walks on water and whatever he says goes and you just sort of go along with it and whatever deacon board or elder board you might have just rubber stamps what he wants to do. Um, a lot of Baptist churches are organized along this line. A lot of Baptist churches are this way. All right? <clears throat> Now, of course, you have the free-for-all. This has just come into play in the last few years. And um, there's no organizational structure. There's no leadership. I, I read one church where they meet on the beach in Los Angeles and go out surfing. So they meet Sunday morning early on, and they have a little church service, and they, they pray for really good waves, and they go out and surf. That's their church. All right? Forget you know, communion, forget the ordinances, forget bap you know, forget all of that. Just go out and let's meet, you know, let's bring God in, you know, once a week and then we'll go out and we'll ride the waves and worship God out on the surf. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you know, we live in a society where you can, you can believe anything you want and create a church for it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. 
We don't need to talk about this much, do we? No. All right, let's go on. Yeah, this is not. Yeah. Yeah, some, some emergent churches are along that line. Yeah, they're splattered all over the landscape. But, but what, what, what comes, the reason I talk about emergent church on this is because their philosophical approach to scripture would lead towards this kind of, yeah. It doesn't mean they all wind up there, but it leads that way a little bit. No, I don't want to say every emergent church is like that. But the emergent concepts, the idea that the scripture is not clear and that we all have an equal voice and we all have an equal understanding and we all have the same Holy Spirit and your opinion on what the passage means is probably as good as mine because neither one of us know what it really meant. Um, that's, that leads that way. All right. So let's look at the officers of the church. The New Testament basically has three, I think, three offices. All right. Um, some would say two. Um, I think you can make the case for a third office of deaconess, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But basically, the, the two major offices are the bishop or elder or pastor, and then there's the office of the deacon, comma, deaconess. All right? And when we talk about bishop, elder, and pastor, sometimes we get confused thinking that, wait a minute, these are three different things. They're three different offices. I don't believe that's the case. I believe there's one office, and I'll show you that in a minute. Then you have the deacon, the office of a deacon. What's a deacon do? He's a servant. What's he do? Well, he's spiritually qualified. In fact, the only real difference between his qualifications and the elders, the elders should be apt to teach and the deacon is not. But the character qualities are pretty much the same. And what does a deacon do? A deacon performs the ministry functions of the church, which are very necessary. All right? And then you have deaconess. All right? And I... I and again, this is a debated area, but, but if you look at um, 1 Timothy 3.11, it talks about the deacon. The deacon, in, in Greek, if you know anything about Rome, if you ever took Romance languages, you know that most nouns have a gender, all right? Well, in Greek, you have gender as well. You have male, female, and then neuter words. Neuter means they're non-gender specific. And the word for servant is non-gender specific. It doesn't, there's no gender associated with it, all right? So I think you can make the case that the word wives, in fact, in many of your, um, in many of your translations it says, and their wives, well, that, they, they put that in there because contextually that word is not in the Greek language. By the way, the Greek language doesn't have a word for wife. Right? There's no separate word for wife. Um, but it says, and the women. Basically, it says, and the women. So you have, he's talking about the elders, then he talks about the deacons, and then he talks about the women and the women. So the question is, well, who's the women talking to? And contextually, I think you can make the, the strong connection that's referring to a deaconess kind of office in the church. Does the specific office of deacon deaconess in this church? Yo, sort of, I guess. We don't have an office. We don't have deacons per se. You don't hear that yeah. Right. In our church, we don't have deacon and deaconesses. We used to have that. Yeah. We we don't really have that. Yeah. Our structure is a little different. All right. Um, but if you look at the text, you can make the, the the connection here. Now, some say, well. That passage, what we're going to talk about this in a few minutes. The passage is referring to the wives of the deacons. So the deacon has to have this character and the deacon's wives have to have this character. Well, what's the problem with that? Why didn't he talk about the elders' wives, right? Yeah, why didn't he talk about them? He's talking about, and the women. So I think you can make the case that it's, it's the deaconess, possibly. All right? And by the way, Phoebe... In Romans 16:1 is called a diaconian, diaconon, a deacon of the church. All right, Phoebe. And what did Phoebe do? Phoebe took the epistle of Paul or of the Romans from I think Corinth to Rome. That was her job. So let's look at this. The term elder, pastor, bishop can be used interchangeably. Let's look at Acts 20. We'll start in Acts 20. Then we're going to go back to 1 Timothy. So don't lose 1 Timothy. In Acts 20, verse 17, this is Paul's uh, account of him meeting the elders in the church at Ephesus. 
All right. And he says, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So what do you know right then? He's sending to Ephesus, which is a city, right? And it calls for the elders of the church. So what does that tell you about the church organization in Ephesus? They had elders, right? They had more than one person leading the church. And he talks to the elders. He said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's telling you remember what I was like when I was there. You know how I was preaching. And now I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. He was on his way to Jerusalem where he would be arrested. All right? And then he says here, But I do not count my, my life of any value, not as precious as myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold... I know that none of you, none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is farewell to these elders. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Here's, here's his charge to them. This is where we want to get to. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, these are the elders of the church. All right, and what does he say that they are to do? They are to take care of what? The flock of God. That is the word pastor, poiamen. That's what a pastor does. A pastor is a shepherd. That's what the Greek word is. He's a shepherd. All right, over which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers. That's the other word, episkopos, from which we get the word bishop. All right. So what do you see here? In this verse, you see that Paul is joining these three concepts together. An elder is a pastor is a bishop. It's the same thing. Now you say, well, what, what's the difference there? Well, elder refers to his age, to his spiritual maturity, to his character qualifications. What kind of people do you want running the church? New Christians? No, you want people that are seasoned to some extent, right? You want people... Now, it's not necessarily saying you've got to be a certain age. You've got to be 30 or 40 or 50 or 60. That's not what it's talking about. But when it talks about your spiritual qualifications, you need to show that you have a spiritual maturity level about you. All right? That refers to your character qualification. Pastor refers to what you do. What do you do as an elder of the church? You shepherd the flock of God. You see that in 1 Peter, where Peter says, um, he says, you need to shepherd the flock of God among, you know, as an under-shepherd. I'm an elder, and I'm speaking to you elders to shepherd the flock of God. It's, it refers to leadership. It refers to care. The idea of pastor, you understand, pastor has three basic duties. He's to feed the flock of God. What is he to feed the flock? The word of God. So what does a shepherd do to sheep? Where does he lead them? To good food, right? Feed. Then the second one is lead. What does that mean? To give guidance to, direction. And then I use weed. What's weed? Well, every once in a while you have to watch out for the wolves that come in, don't you? You've got to watch for false doctrine that pops up. You've got to watch for error that creeps in. And one of the jobs as a pastor is to one of the jobs he needs to do is to warn the flock of error that is out there because they're grievous wolves. And it, Paul even talks later on, he says, I know from among you, from among your own group, there's going to be grievous wolves that are going to rise up, not sparing the flock. You've you got to watch out for these. Now, we don't like that. And sometimes there are people in the congregation that get a little bit irritated when the pastor comes down hard on some doctrine or something. Look, he's just doing his job. Don't give him a hard time. He's doing his job. He's protecting the flock. If somebody comes into this church teaching error, what would you expect the pastor to do? Do his job. Do his job. He better. 
He'd better do his job, and part of it is to protect the flock. And that's one of the problems in the emergent church. Well, how do you protect the flock when everybody's opinion is right? How, how do you do that? Yeah. And that's what Paul says here. I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Because I did not shun to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. I didn't pick the pieces I like and bag the rest. And see, that's why I believe, just personally, expository preaching is so valid. Because what do you do? When Pastor Jim is preaching through Mark, what do you know he's going to preach on next week? By and large. The next passage. Right? He's not going to skip over it. You've got to go through the whole thing. If that next passage is a tough passage, what do you do? You've got to slog through it. You can't just jump over it and go on with the rest of the stuff. Expository preaching keeps you truer to the word because you can't skip the pieces that you like. You ever go to a church? I mean, we, I know pastors, you know, they've got their pet topics, and that's all they want to talk about. And they don't talk about the rest of the scripture. Listen, our job as an elder, pastor, is to declare the whole counsel of God, not just the pieces we like. Yeah. He shut them from the Old Testament how they should have figured this thing out, and, and they didn't. Um, and then what's the bishop? Well, that refers to the office, episkopos. What does that mean? Overseer. That's what the word means, to be an overseer. All right? So that refers to the office, to the leading, to, the, to his leadership position. But it's the same person. It's the same individual that ha holds all three of those things. And the main qualifications or main text dealing with the elders are 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, Titus 1, 5 through 9. So let's look at these qualifications and work our way through them. And we'll probably get stuck here for a while, but don't worry about it. I've got two weeks to work through this. So if I don't get it done this week, we got next week. Um, 1 Timothy chapter 3. First of all, why... To understand 1 Timothy, you've got to ask, well, why did Paul write 1 Timothy? What's, what's, the, re what's the reason this book was written? To guide his project. Yeah. yeah, to guide his project. Who is Timothy and Titus? They're Paul's replacements. They're his true sons in the faith, he calls them. Paul's going to pass off the scene. He's 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 old man now. He's not going to be around that much longer. Timothy and Titus are going to take his place. So he writes a letter to them. Now where is Timothy when he wrote this letter? Well, Timothy is in Ephesus to set in order the things that are lacking in that church. Paul left him in Ephesus to help work through some issues that Ephesus was going through. And he wrote this letter back to Timothy to encourage him in his task and to give him some credence as to what he was doing by having Paul just display his confidence in Timothy. All right? And the key verse in Timothy is really 1 Timothy 3.15, where Paul says that if I tarry, he says, if I delay, you might know how one ought to be saved, behave in the house of, household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So Paul is saying, the reason I wrote this is because I want you to know that if I tarry, if, if, if I'm late, if I don't get there, I want you to know how to behave yourself in the church. So the question then is, what is 1 Timothy all about? Life in the church. How to, how to function in the church, what the church is about, what the church is to do. That's the purpose of 1 Timothy. Now some people want to say, <coughs> well that's just referring to the Ephesus church. It doesn't refer to our church. So we can ignore Timothy and what it says to us because it was really written to Ephesus. Well, if you do that, you can get rid of the entire Bible because it was always written to somebody else, right? You can't go down that path. First Timothy was written to help Timothy set in order the things in the church. And as part of that, Paul says, I want, you to, I want to give you the qualifications for the elders. And that's what he does in 1 Timothy chapter 3. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, he desires a good task. Greek word, episkopos, overseer, elder. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Here's the first character quality. 
He must be above reproach. What does that mean? What do you think that means? Above reproach. Doesn't mean he's sinless. Right. It doesn't mean he's sinless, right? Because is anybody sinless? No, we're not all, none of us are sinless, right? What it does mean is that when you look at the pastor, when you look at, at this individual that's going to be an elder, there's no glaring character flaw in him. You can't say, yeah, Jim is a great... I'm, I'm just going to use the word Jim, not our Jim, but just Jim in general. Jim's a great guy, but you know, he has a violent temper once in a while. Well, that might disqualify him as an elder, right? Because the last thing you want him to do is pop off in a meeting and pop somebody in the nose. All right? Right. It could. It could. It could. The idea there is, is in the community, in the church, but in the community at large, there's no glaring issue, quality, character quality, character flaw in this person. It doesn't mean he's blameless. It doesn't in the sense of never sinning, not committing a sin, but he's above reproach. There's, no, there, there's nothing he did to bring reproach on the name of Christ. For example, if you have a pastor who, who you know, 15 years ago embezzled a million dollars from a church, is he above reproach? No. He's disqualified. Now there's a big argument here, and if, if you want to know how I feel on this, I wrote a paper, it's out on my website. What about a pastor who falls in immorality? Is he forever disqualified? Ooh, that's a tougher one, isn't it? Now, there are some that say, yeah, he's forever disqualified. That's it. Never again could he ever be a, an elder. Yeah. We're going to get to that in a minute. Um, I'll tell you where I land on this. I don't think he is forever disqualified, but I think it's a tough road back. Right? Yeah. One thing to cheat on your wife one time or briefly as opposed to the Tiger Woods scenario. Yeah. You know, I don't there, there's a lot of issues there. And, and by the way, understand, this is a tough topic. This is, we're running with the big dogs now. This is tough to figure out. All right? There are some that take the path and say, like John MacArthur said, well, you're forever disqualified. You'll never be able to be a pastor again. doesn't mean you can't be used by God. doesn't mean you can't serve the Lord. But as an elder of a church, you could never again be an elder. All right? There's, certain, there's certainly validity to that. All right? Well, here's really the key question. Can that person ever be brought back to the point where the church trusts them again? And if the answer to that is no, he's not above reproach. We would probably go more along that, that he could not. Yeah, we'd go more along the lines he could not. I don't think that's a hard and fast, yes, there's no possible way. Here's the danger when, when something like that happens. We'll digress a couple of minutes. Here's the danger. When you have a pastor and he falls into morality and he says, gee, I'm sorry, and then three months later he's preaching again, what is that saying about things? Well, if you do something wrong, well, slap you on the wrist, you get three months vacation, then you're back in the saddle again. Wait a minute. All right. Yeah. Here's where I firmly stand. The office of a pastor is a very sacred a very somber, a very serious spot to be in. There's a certain decorum to that. There's a certain gravitas, if you use a fancy word, gravitas to that. You don't put somebody in there who's a comedian <coughs> or someone who sins and it, ha ha, so what, you know, three months later I'm back doing things again. That's a serious place to be in. You are, you are accountable to God. And if you are in that spot and the congregation can't trust you, you shouldn't be in their spot. Because then you can't lead the congregation. How are you going to tell or counsel people in the church dealing with marital issues if you've had affairs on the side? 
your credibility is shot. Right. And unfortunately, in our society, it can be shot for an awful long time. Yes. Yeah. And it says, yeah, set out X amount of time, yeah, would be inappropriate, not three months, right? But you said a word a minute ago before I can't remember the word twice. You, well, no, I know what, but you might need to explain that. But no, you said the word accountability. That was underlying what I said earlier, and I need to hurry up and throw in that I intended that. If, I don't have a problem if the answer would be no, but if the congregation or whoever is in charge of the, you know, says, okay, you set out a year or something, then there would have to be this tight accountability. Yeah. Starting with the wife carried into the church, carried into where at any given time there are stopgap measures mm -hmm. put in place that keeps an eye on him, and he has to accept that I deserve that because of what I did. Yeah. I, I, if you read my, the, the paper I put together, and by the way, I put that together in response to the Sherman thing a long time ago. Um, if you read that, I don't come out and say there's no possible way he could ever be a pastor again. Because I don't think the Bible says, I don't think you can make the case he's forever disqualified. But I think you certainly make the case it's going to take an awful long time. It may take a decade or more. I'm not talking about a year. I'm talking about years okay. where he could ever get back to that spot again, if, if at all. And he may not even be able to do that in that congregation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do that. I mean, yeah. I forget who it was. There was a prominent leader. I'm thinking it was LaHaye. It may not have been him. It may have been somebody. Lin Who's the one who wrote The Late Great Planet Earth? Lindsay? No, that's not. It's Lindsay. There's a Hal Lindsay, and there's another one. I can't remember. One of them. One of those guys, I think fell in immorality and left his church and went down to somebody else and was immediately accepted. I don't know which one. Um, I think one of those guys. Um, well, I, there's a problem with that. All right. The, the point is this. If that man can't be trusted, he has no business being in that office. And here's another big thing. Would his wife trust him? If his wife can't trust him, how can the congregation trust him? That, uh, I, I'm thinking that's almost a, a lethal, I mean, that, that's pretty much a lethal activity. I'm not going to say that there's no possible way in 20 years he could ever be restored. I'm not going to go there. But I'll tell you what, this idea that we have today in a lot of these churches with Jimmy Swaggart, okay, he has this dalliance, and you know, three months later he's back and running his ministry. That, that lowers the bar. Here's the thing. Here, here's what you see in the office of an elder. What is God doing? God is raising the bar of qualification. He's raising it very high. Why? Because he wants all of us to aspire to that, right? It's not just the elder. It's all of us should be aspiring to that. But he's to be the, the model. He's to be the example. And when you, when you lower that bar down, what makes... Everybody in the congregation just makes them that much more comfortable with their sin. Well, the pastor did it. Why can't I do it, you know? And, and, and unfortunately, that's, that's the mentality that people do. Yes. It's a higher standard is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be above reproach. The, the, the elder of the church needs to be a man who is above reproach. All right. There, 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 there's no glaring character flaw in his life that everybody can point to and say, wow, he, he, he's a great preacher, but he doesn't pay his bills on time. He's been bankrupt two or three times. Well, you, you can't be a pastor. All right, if you can't manage your finances, you can't be a pastor. Now, that's, of course, barring medical catastrophes and things like that. But by and large, in fact, somebody said one of the worst credit risks is pastors. What does that tell about Christianity? 
That's bad news. Gravitas is, is a gravity, a seriousness, a somberness, a, I don't know how to pronounce, do it any better. There, there's, a, there's a certain honor given to that position and to people who are in that. It's not that you're putting them on a pedestal. Don't go there. We're not putting them on a pedestal. We're just saying that that office, that, and that's what I'm talking about, the office, the pulpit, is a sacred place. And you don't want somebody in there who treats it commonly. It's someone who treats it with the, with the respect and the dignity that it is. All right. Um, the second one here, he needs to be the husband of one wife. Um, this, this is an interesting, now this is another great one that they fight on. What does it mean, the husband of one wife? By the way, what would this disqualify as an elder? Huh? No? No, it's something more obvious than that. No? If you've got to be the husband of one wife, who does that disqualify? Huh? Has to be a man. Yeah. Unless you want to go down the lesbian route, which I don't think we want to go at this point, all right? Needs to be the husband of one wife, all right? Now, in the Greek structure, it's too obvious, right? It's just too obvious you miss it. Um, look, and by the way, all I'm doing is taking what Paul wrote. If you don't, you know, if you don't like it, you can holler at him when you get to heaven. Um, or the Holy Spirit, actually, who authored who caused Paul to write it down. But um, he needs to be the husband of one wife. Now, in the Greek construct, that means a one-woman man. That's what it means. One-woman man. A man devoted to one woman. So, how would that practically work out in our society? Well, some would say he, can't, he could not have been divorced. Well, there's a Greek word for divorce, and Paul didn't use it here. Right? Because here's a question. You're telling me the guy could be an ex-murderer and be a pastor, but if he was divorced at some point, he could not be. Does that make any sense? Right? There are some, that, you know, there are some places where if a man wants to be a pastor and they find out that, he, that before he was a Christian he got a divorce, they won't let him become a pastor because he was divorced before he became a Christian. But now they would go gaga over somebody who was an ex-drug pusher who came to know the Lord and they'd want him to be a pastor. Look, I don't think that's what the text is saying. The text is saying that the elder is someone who is devoted to his wife. If he is married, he is devoted to his wife. Now, there are some that say, well, he's got to be married. He can't be a single person. Well, possibly Timothy was single. And by the way, how, was Paul married or single? He was single and he was an elder. So you're not going to be able to disqualify the single guys on this. But what it does mean, if you're married, are you devoted to your wife? Are you, is she the only one in your life? And it also means, uh, somebody used the word woman over there, it also means you can't be polygamous. No. more than one wife at a time. He's a one-woman man. One-woman man. Now some have even said, well, if the pastor's wife dies and he remarries, he's disqualified. Because now he's had two wives. Come on. I mean... That's biblically, yeah, that's fine, all right? Look, just go back to what the text says. The man who is an elder needs to be devoted, if he is married, he needs to be devoted to his wife. What does that mean to be devoted to your wife? Practically, how would we work that out in our modern society? What would you look for? Someone who's a one-woman man, what would you look for? Loyalty to what? To the covenant of marriage. So you're going to want to ask yourselves, if you're considering a man as a prospective elder, you're going to want to ask yourself, how does he treat his wife? Yeah, how does he treat his wife? Does he beat his wife? Does he mistreat his wife? Does he belittle his wife? I have real problems when pastors get up and they joke about their wives. I don't like that. I think that's really bad news. I really do. I, 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 I know some pastors that do that. I, I, I would never do that with Donna. I, I would never joke about her or belittle her to people in public. I, I just wouldn't do that. But look at our society. What else would 
disqualify a person technically from being married to one woman but not being a one woman man? Well, adultery would certainly kill him. I mean, that would be the above reproach thing. But what else? TV. Right? What is he watching on TV? Wow, that'll tell you something. Or any idol. You know, if, his, if, his, uh, if one of his favorite shows is Desperate Housewives, what's that telling you? Yeah. You don't need to go there. How else can you be disqualified in this? Be technically married to one woman, but yet not be a one-woman man. You're missing the obvious one. You need to honor your wife. You need to treat her with respect. Is she honored? You can pick that out, right? But what other way, very obvious way in our society? Pornography. Pornography. See, all these things are so simple, you're missing them. You're looking for some profound, deep, spiritual thing. Yeah, yeah. Pornography. Um, I, I was reading, uh, I don't know if you, you uh, ever remember Ruth Dimwitty on WCRF? Ruth Dimwitty? Well, her husband was, I think, music pastor at uh, Moody Church. And one day uh, they had to move the offices around. They were moving his office. They found in his bottom desk drawer a whole stack of pornographic magazines. Was he a one-woman man? No. No. And here's the problem. In our society, this stuff is pumped at you in a pressure hose. You don't have to go get it. It's pumped at you. If you have a man who is addicted to pornography, who is always looking at scantily clad women, or someone who has a wandering eye, I mean, he's not committed adultery, he's not done any of that, but you know, he looks over the women... Is he a one-woman man? No, he isn't. Yes. And he's shown respect for his wife when he's not looking around at other women. All right? He's shown respect for her. You can be, you could technically be married to one woman, technically never have committed adultery, and yet not be a one-woman man. And one of the things this happens, particularly in, in being a pastor and elder, um, is counseling of women. That's why we desperately need a women's ministry in a church because pastors have no business, I'm telling you, pastors have no business counseling women for the most part. The temptation is too great. Howard Hendricks did a study of, uh, he said, he was here, he said he did a study of 200 pastors that had fallen in immorality and 172 of them, I think it was, it started with counseling women. It started with that. And I remember when I, when I first started teaching at Open Door, I taught the Singles in Harmony class. That was a long time ago. And I had a guy in that class who taught with me, and he used to always give me a hard time. He said, you know, Alan, you're not friendly enough with the people in the class. I said, Bob, they're single, divorced women. I'm not supposed to be friendly. I mean, I don't want to be obnoxious. You understand that. I don't want to be snotty or anything like that, but I'm not going to be palsy-wowsy with them. There's a reason for that. And I used to be, he used to give me a hard time all the time because I wouldn't, you know, be a, be, you know, you need to be more friendly. You need to be, look, I'm not going to go there, all right? I'm not going to even go down that path because I don't want to start a path that winds up in a bad spot. And unfortunately, he didn't go that way and he wound up in a bad spot. Look, if, sometime, if you're a woman and sometimes the pastor doesn't seem friendly with you, you understand there's a reason for that. It's not that he doesn't like you. It's not that he hates you. It's not that, there's got to be a barrier there. We live in a society where it is just way too easy for this stuff to sneak up on you. And before you know it, bam, you're, you're trapped. It's like, what happened? I like what Howard Hendricks says. You know, the fall in immorality is not a sudden thing. It's not like you wake up one day and say, today, I'm going to commit adultery today and ruin my ministry. That's what I'm going to do. I've decided to do that. No, it's a slow leak over time. And then one day it happens and it's like, what happened? And you're caught off guard. You need to be a one-woman man. You need to, an elder, you want your elder to place barriers around himself to prevent himself from going down that path. 
And if he's in adultery, uh, pornography, if he's in uh, that kind of stuff, you got to watch it. Pastor Wallace wouldn't even pray with a woman that came forward mm -hmm. and needed prayer. He asked for another woman, woman mm -hmm. right. to come forward and pray with her. And Sammy was the first woman I ever saw he, that he would let hug him. Mm. And it was when he left. Yeah. And she rushed up there and hugged him. And he was like... <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, the point is, the point is, it's not. It's not that the pastor is not being friendly or not. But you gotta watch. We live in a society, folks, where the slide in immorality is very gradual, and before long, you can find yourself in a bad spot. You need to be devoted. If you're an elder of the church, if you're a leader in the church, you need to be devoted to your wife, and you don't have to have a wandering eye looking at some other woman. Yeah, so, all right, we're going to pick up here next week. Father, thank you for this day that you've granted to us and the time to discuss your word. I pray that you would pound these truths home to us and help us to remember them. Thank you for this day in Christ's name, amen.